Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... I survived Ted Bundy. Theodore Robert Bundy was one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. He confessed to kidnapping, raping, and murdering over 24 women, one as young as 12 years old, although the actual count remains a mystery. He carried out his reign of terror throughout seven states during the 1970s. Some of his victims escaped the final act and lived to share the stories of their ordeals. One such victim was Rhonda Stapley, author of the book, I Survived Ted Bundy, The Attack, Escape, and PTSD That Changed My Life. She didn't disclose to her own family until almost 35 years after the attack. Her book was published in 2016, and she sat down with me to share her story of survival. It was October the 11th, 1974. That day, I'd taken a a city bus downtown to a dental appointment. And after the appointment, I'd walked over to a city park and was waiting for a bus to take me back up to campus. Instead of finishing waiting for the bus that was running late, I um, was waiting at the, up on the bench and, and a tan-colored Volkswagen drove by. Cute driver slowed down and then backed up and rolled his window down and asked me where I was going. I told him I was going up to the U and he said, I'm going there too, you want a ride? This was 1974 and it didn't feel like hitchhiking. It didn't feel scary or dangerous in any way. It just felt like a, a, a college student helping another college student. Didn't seem wrong or worrisome. He said he's Ted. I said, I'm Rhonda and I'm a pharmacy student. And he told me he was Ted and he was a law student. We talked about just things that people who don't know each other very well would talk about. The, the weather and the road construction and new buildings on campus. and. Yeah, he turned a direction that wasn't the normal way that I would have gone. And I questioned him about that. And he was very, very polite. And, and he says, well, I hope you don't mind. I just have a really short errand to run up by the zoo. And if you know Salt Lake City, the campus is right up on the mountain, right next to the canyons. And the zoo is located in the very first canyon. Uh, and so it wasn't really very far out of the way. And I figured I'd still be home faster than if I'd waited for the for the late, late bus. The the first canyon we went up we went right past the zoo and I of course asked him about that I said I thought you were taking me to the zoo and he said no I said near the zoo and then we just kept going and it became obvious that we weren't going to the zoo that we were just going for a ride but I'm still not alarmed because I'm naive and stupid (laughs) and and I said um I thought you were taking me to the zoo he said no near the zoo and we kept on going and pretty soon that 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 canyon enters into Parley's Canyon, which is the main canyon back into the city from like Wyoming and places. 
So we were on the main road headed back into the city and I'm still not alarmed. The sun's starting to go down, but you know, we're headed back to where we belong and I'm thinking he just was being flirtatious and taking me on a low car ride and and I, I'm still not not worried about it. Then we get out of the canyon and we should turn right to go to campus. And instead he turned left and pretty soon we're headed up another canyon. And that was when the ride started to feel weird. It wasn't really scary yet. It was just kind of feeling anxious. And he, instead of just keeping talking to me and having the conversation going, he'd stopped talking and was just holding onto the steering wheel with both hands and just driving. And I, of course, am trying to keep some kind of casual conversation going and he's not helped me at all. It's just starting to feel weird and strange. And in my mind, I'm thinking that he's looking for a place to pull over and park and make out and I don't know him and I'm not a make out girl. And, but, but he's a law student and I'm a pharmacy student and who wouldn't want to meet up with somebody like that? I still want him to be my friend. So I'm thinking that I need to get out of this in a way that doesn't embarrass either of us. Yeah, he pulled into a, like an abandoned picnic area and pulled kind of way back in the trees and turned the car off and then he turned in the seat so he was almost facing me and leaned in really close. And I, of course, I'm still thinking, he's gonna try to kiss me, how can I get out of this? And instead, he just really quietly and again, almost politely said, do you know what? I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> On September 2nd, 1974, Bundy raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, then either disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river, or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. And he put his hands on my throat and started squeezing and shaking. And um, So there was a battle in the car uh, which I lost. I, I became unconscious and he moved me out of the out of the car to a picnic table in the area. He seemed to just like kind of watching me go unconscious, like watching me die. And so he would choke me until I was unconscious or he would put his hand over my nose and mouth and, and cut off my air supply. Or sometimes he would just sit on my stomach and chest with all of his weight so that there's no room for oxygen to get into the lungs and just kind of squish the air out of me. And yeah, if you stop struggling, I'll let you have air. In her book, Rhonda does write in detail about what Bundy did to her sexually. Due to the graphic nature of those details, I decided not to include them here. I regained consciousness and he was at the car that was probably 30 feet away, I imagine. It's pitch black everywhere, but the car door's open and the little dome light is, is glowing. And I can see just his silhouette over doing something in the back of that little car. And I just jumped and ran. Um, I, I didn't plan a big heroic kind of escape. I just was thinking, if I'm gonna live, I've got to run. And I couldn't see anything, so I just bolted into the blackness. And I happened to fall into a fast moving mountain stream it's probably the only place in the entire canyon system that things would have come together exactly right. So there must have been some, some intervention from above or good luck on my side or leprechaun in my pocket or <laughs> something that day. 
Shortly after midnight on January 4, 1974, Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a dancer and student at UW. After bludgeoning Sparks senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. Unfortunately, I was able to climb out, and because I had those double-knotted boots on, I was able to just, you know, pull up my pants and rearrange my clothes and, and walk home. Had I not had those shoes and I would have been barefoot and probably more naked, I, I, people would have found out about my story because I wouldn't have been able to keep it secret. The very first thing when I, when I got out of that stream is the very first thought that I had was, no one can ever know I did this stupid thing, ever, ever. I just have to suck it up and pretend it never happened. And I figured it was just a one-time isolated incident. I had no idea he was a serial guy and he was going to kill more people. I just thought he's just a bad guy and I happened to take a ride with the wrong person and he's far gone by now. This was about 10 days after the assault and uh, I still had bruises and things, but but because I was acting so erratic and running all night and upset and nervous and my roommates could tell something was wrong. Of course, they had no idea what it was, but they said, you know, you really should go to a doctor and find out. And I was having some urinary tract infections. And of course, I'm still young and stupid. And, and so I'm thinking maybe I'm pregnant or maybe he's hurt me somehow. And maybe, you know, maybe I better go to the doctor and check this out. And so I went in and I still didn't want to tell anybody what happened. I just wanted him to check me out and make sure I'm okay. And so they did the, you know, the blood work and the urine test and thing to rule that out. And then he asked me, so when was your last pelvic exam? And I told him, well, I've, I've never had a pelvic exam. And he says, well, you can, we can do it or we can skip it. But being you're having symptoms in that area, and if you're sexually active, then I would suggest it. And I'm thinking, does being raped mean you're sexually active? Or I don't know, but I says, well, probably we should do it. And so we did. And he's told me that there were some vaginal tearing, but they usually heal themselves. But maybe in the future, I would want to be a little bit less exuberant. After my adventure, the very next week, um, he kidnapped another girl and her body was missing, but her father was the, the police chief in one of the nearby towns. And so he was on the news talking about, you know, asking the public to help look for his daughter and, and things. And that's when I thought, whoa, there's a, I still didn't want to think it was that my guy was the bad, bad guy. I was thinking, gosh, it's weird that there are multiple bad guys <laughs> running around in my little town. Yeah. Gets rid of your self-esteem and your feelings of being a, a worthy person ever to, to meet and some, marry someone that's nice. It's like destroys your your worth and value. Bundy also claimed that at one time where he had two victims at the same time, that he forced one to watch as he murdered the other. It would, it would get a little bit better and then something would happen that would stir it up again. They'd find a body in a canyon or uh, when, I, when I really knew that 
my bad guy was a really bad guy was um, in November, November the 8th. So mine was in October the 11th, so just not even quite a full month later. By then, he'd killed the girl before me in Utah and two girls after me in Utah. And then there was um, the time that he kidnapped Carol Durant, and she managed to escape. Uh, he'd used handcuffs on her, but she had managed to escape from his Volkswagen, very brave kind of thing. And, and that upset him, so he went to Bountiful. It's like 10 miles away. and kidnapped Deborah Kent from the high school. And when they found a, a handcuff key in the parking lot where Deborah was taken that fit the odd brand handcuffs that Deborah, or that um, Carol Durant had, had been used on her, her assault, I knew that their bad guy was my bad guy. And, you know, Carol gave a good description of him and his car. And I, I still thought there's no reason for me to come forward because all the bad things I, that I worried about happening would still happen. And the police knew as much as I knew. He told me his name was Ted, but I figured that was a lie. And they had a you know, description of him and his car. I didn't think there was anything else that I had to offer. Still hoping for a semblance of a normal life, Rhonda met Barry, who would ultimately become her husband. She felt she couldn't hide her ordeal from him. She shared the barest of details, but left out the crucial one that her bad guy was the notorious Ted Bundy. In the very beginning, before we even had been kind of barely talking about maybe we should get married, I thought we should he should know all the history stuff. And, and so I told him that I had been raped. He said he didn't he didn't care, it didn't make any difference, and um, he never asked any specifics and I didn't offer any and we just never talked about it ever again until all these years later. And I really thought that I had dealt with it and it wasn't part of my everyday life. You know, I was active in the church and active in the kids' school and PTA and, and the pharmacy profession and the community and all the things. I was, and I hardly ever let Ted Bundy even enter my mind. I thought I had handled it. Of course, I hadn't handled it. I just stuffed it inside and, and tried to forget about it. So I had graduated and I got a first job as a, as a young pharmacist, um, feeling like I need to be responsible and, and I'm starting to make friends and I'm back to church and, and I'm trying to be more social and, and uh, things are going well. And then Ted Bundy escaped from jail in Colorado and that tipped everything upside down again. And, and, um, I'm thinking, you know, if he's if he's smart enough to escape, people can't escape from prison. That, what that's ridiculous. And if he's smart enough to escape, he's smart enough to find me, and he could kill me. And he could, he's, he's for sure going to kill other women. And it's my fault that I didn't arrest him sooner. Maybe he wouldn't have even gone to Colorado and murdered the girl there. And. Uh, In the early hours of January 15, 1978, one week after his arrival in Tallahassee, Florida, after escaping from a Colorado prison, Bundy entered an FSU sorority house through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. 
He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious and strangled her. In the adjoining bedroom, he then attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder, and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner later attributed their survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away the attacker. All of that guilt came flooding back on, and I just had all, all that guilt and emotions and worthless feelings and sadness, and I decided that I was just going to take a handful of, of a, a sleeping pill. And as soon as I did that, then I felt guilty about that because you're going to go to hell if you do that too. That's not, that's not anywhere in the, in the scriptures that that's a way of handling whatever happens to you. And so I called a, a crisis line and it happened to be answered by this young, uh, young psychologist named Dr. David. And um, about that time I passed out from the, <laughs> from the overdose and, and he had the line traced and, and sent paramedics and people to rescue me. And I didn't want rescuing, so I was just angry, angry. And I blamed him because now, you know, the police know. And now my, I'm probably going to get fired from my pharmacy job. And, and it's all David's fault. And so I was really angry at him. And, and about the time the ambulance and people were leaving, decided that I was not dying. And they were all leaving. Dr. David showed up and I didn't want to let him in, but my roommate let him in. So I locked myself in my bedroom and he's trying to talk to me and I'm screaming at him, telling him, go away, you've ruined my life. And, um, and so he went away. He left a card with my roommate and said, I think right. that, you know, I'd like her to call me tomorrow, you know, call me sometime when we should talk. And so I did call him and I, um, he's come on, come on down and let's talk. And so I decided, okay, I, I probably need, you need to talk to him because maybe if I am in trouble with the state board or somebody, maybe he, he can help me get out of it. And he owes me that much somehow, you know, my, <laughs> my, my young victim mind is thinking everybody owes me something. And, and um, so I, I went to talk to him and I just grabbed, he says, you know, come, come now. And so I grabbed my cleanest, dirty clothes and, and I, drove into the city to, to talk to him. And of course, I didn't know what to say. And so it was kind of awkward. How do I say that I'm stupid without acting like I'm stupid? And, and he, um, he said, you don't like yourself very much, do you? And I thought, how do you know? You don't even know me. How do you know that I like myself? And he just pointed at my, my dirty, wrinkled blue jeans and stuff. And, and I just thought, you know, just... I'm done with you, just stay out of my life. So I stayed angry at him forever and just kicked him out of my life until all these years later. Many decades later, Rhonda reached out to Dr. David again for some help. And so I sent him a little email saying, you know, we, we met a lot of years ago, probably 35 years ago, and 
and I didn't like you. <laughs> you probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> and probably I was, but I am again. Can I talk to you? <laughs> the first thing he said when I walked in and sat down is he says, I remember you. <laughs> you didn't like me very much. <laughs> I, said, I didn't like anybody right then. You, you spend a lot of time just getting to know each other so that you can dare to open up and share little bits. Dr. David gave Rhonda a between-sessions homework assignment to open up and share with another person in her life. She chose one of her adult daughters. Yeah, I have a, a daughter who's, she's an adult, but she lives in our, we have an apartment in our, in our home in the basement, and she lives in the downstairs apartment. She spends lots and lots of time with us, and, and um, at, at that time, because I was just so wrapped up in the PTSD, everybody thought I was crazy. And my, my husband and my daughter were saying, you know, you should, you should take a pill or see a doctor because you're, <laughs> you're off the wall berserk. And, and um, so after I had seen Dr. David, my daughter decided that we would go get fast food as long as she could drive because I was a, I was a nag. And as long as I didn't nag her, if I promised to just be quiet and sit there, then she would take us and we, or we, we would go and pick up fast food and take it home. So we're sitting in the fast food line and, and um, just kind of talking about her day at school. She was at that time a, a, grade, or a, yeah, a grade school teacher and, and um, she was telling me how awful the kids are being rude and not, not minding her good. And, and uh, I just said that I had a bad guy. And she says, you had a bad guy? And I says, yeah. Then we were home in our driveway, and I told her, someday maybe I'll tell you about it. For a short period of time during his reign of terror in Washington State, Bundy had a day job, working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Later, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services, a state agency involved in the search for missing women. So then I decided I would order the book because the doctor had told me that he had just bought a book about a, a new copy of, of um, Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, about Ted Bundy. And I, of course, had read that, but I had, hadn't bought a, a new edition. And, the new edition had had some updated uh, stuff. She put some updates on the survivors and what was going on in their lives now. And, and I was way interested in knowing about other survivors. And so I bought the new book. And, and when it came in the mail, my daughter says, she's curious because she's a school teacher and she thinks I hardly ever read. <laughs> and here's a bookstore package coming. And she says, what? so she's grabbing it and opening it. And I'm, telling her that's she she gets it and I say that's my bad guy and then she looks at it again she says this is your bad guy and she says yeah that's my bad guy while waiting execution Bundy gave several interviews 
In one, he confessed that he would often return to the crime scenes, often several times, to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their decomposing bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. Bundy also calmly admitted that in Utah, he applied makeup to Melissa Smith's lifeless face, and he repeatedly washed another victim's hair. He decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and kept the severed heads in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of them. And then, of course, the therapist wanted me to share with more people so I would have more people in my support group. So he wanted me to bring Barry into it. And I was reluctant to do that because he's he's, uh, kind of just... Right after my PTSD started, he had a heart attack, and I thought it was my fault for that, too. And I'm feeling guilt for everything under the planet is my fault. And I didn't want to make more waves in his world, but I decided that I needed to tell him. So we took the dogs to the dog park one day, and I was crying and told him, and and he wasn't getting it. He was, like, wrapped up in his, his own depression about his heart failure and stuff. And he just kind of said, well, you know, that was a long time ago, and he's been dead for years and years, and just get over it. And he didn't know that you can't just get over it. So. Rhonda, by her own admission, is doing better, taking one day at a time. She has retired from pharmacy, but has a thriving business with her sister Bunny, called Snuggle Hose. I am. I'm, I'm functional, and I'm pretty happy. It's a little business called snuggle hose we make fleece covers for hoses for CPAP machines for people who have sleep apnea shipping to every every state and Germany and Canada and I asked Rhonda what gave her the courage to write I survived Ted Bundy and put it all out there for the entire world to see I read something about Abraham Lincoln Abraham Lincoln had had one of his friends from Illinois come visit him at the White House and the neighbor was saying, you know that there's another neighbor that they shared in common whose chickens were always getting out and their cows were in my corn. And he's, he says, I've, I've fixed him. I've written him like a 12-page letter just telling him off for everything he's ever done ever since he moved to our neighborhood. And President Lincoln says, good, now burn it. You know, because you've, you've, you've written it and you've aired your, you've vented and now you feel better. And I thought, I bet I could do that. You know, they say the only way to get through PTSD is to express it. And maybe instead of talking to somebody, maybe I don't have to do that. Maybe I can just write it down and then I will burn it. <laughs> and it can stay hidden where it's been for 40 years and it'll just stay there another 40 years and life can go back to normal. And so I started writing it, um, kind of pretending that I was just sitting on the deck talking to my best friend and just kind of writing down what happened and explain and say, well, you know, let me tell you at the end when I was ready to burn it, I was thinking, you know, this might, might help somebody else because I can't be the only person who's kept this secret. And that was right at the beginning when all of the Me Too things were just starting to come out and the Bill Cosby women were coming forward and the Weinstein and, you know, all of those people and college campus women were getting, were reporting rapes and their rapists were getting off with knuckle slaps from the, <laughs> from the judges and really lenient things and encouraging people not to open up again and I was thinking you know if, it, if my story can help one or two people that'll be 
that'll be worth it. But I did go back and forth a lot because once you tell the story, you can't take it back once it's published. And I would think I'll publish and then I would think, no, I'll just, I'll just have one person on the planet read it and that will be Anne Rule. If she'll read my book, that'll be good enough. And I didn't know that her daughter, Leslie, also was an editor and a publisher at a little publishing company. And Leslie read it. She, she says, you know, my mom is like 83 years old and she doesn't read very much anymore, but I'll read it to her. And so send it to me and let me look at it. And then she called me back and she says, you know, I'm reading this out loud to my husband and he never sits still for this stuff. And, and he says, read another chapter, read another chapter. <laughs> so I published it and she got her mother to write the foreword. Bundy died in the Florida electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24, 1989. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out. Uh, I, was, I was very aware of it. I wasn't carrying signs and shouting cheers and hooray hooroo. Um, I didn't really feel any personal, like it didn't fix anything for me. It was you know, 15 years too late and not on my behalf, but at least he's not hurting anybody ever, ever again. And he would have just kept on killing because he would kill and kill again and escape and kill again and escape and kill again. And he would not have been stopped. He needed to die. Experts tell us that one in five women experience rape during their lifetime. Some barely escape with their lives. Many are scarred physically. Most experience irreparable emotional damage in the form of PTSD. Unfortunately, even in this enlightened time of the Me Too movement, victims don't always get the support they need even from their own partners and families. Hopefully, Rhonda's candid book can begin to change that. She invites victims to contact her via email at rhondastapley, one word, at gmail.com. Better yet, buy her book and share it with a friend. I wish to thank Rhonda Stapley for taking a break from making snuggle hoses to join me today on Murder Most Foul. Of course, I'd also like to thank my listeners and hope you will share this podcast with your friends. It can be downloaded via your favorite platform or from my website, Murder Most Foul, all one word, no spaces, no caps, dot com. You can also leave me comments there via the email link. Until next adventure, stay safe.